and welcome to The Fine Print, a National Museum's NI four-part podcast that looks at exhibitions held in the Ulster Museum through the prism of the art of printmaking. My name is Anna Leeching. I am curator of art at the Ulster Museum and one of the collections I'm responsible for is works of art on paper, which includes nearly 2,000 prints. We decided to create this podcast during lockdown as we haven't been able to have our usual talks, tours and events programme that would accompany exhibitions. As a curator, I have really missed these discussions and interactions with visitors and other art professionals, so it has been great to take the time to do that, but in a different format. The following episodes were recorded remotely from our homes. Each episode is a conversation between myself and another artist, writer, curator or creative taking an Ulster Museum exhibition as our theme. The following episode is a chat between myself and writer Dr. Podrick Reagan. They are the author of two poetry pamphlets, Delicious and Who Seemed Alive and Altogether Real. Along with writing, they teach at the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's. I talked with Podrick about my thinking behind the Rembrandt exhibition, the practicalities of organising an exhibition in lockdown, Also, their love of the connection between art and poetry, which includes us delving into the term ekphrasis. I also discovered how poignant it was for us to talk about Dutch artists, as Podrick actually wrote about them in their undergrad thesis. The exhibition we are discussing is a unique silence welcoming Rembrandt to the Ulster Museum, which opened in September 2020. For further information on the artists we discuss and the works included in the exhibition, please check out a unique silent Smartify tour by visiting smartify.org or downloading the Smartify app and searching for the Ulster Museum. So hi Podrick, thanks for joining me today and agreeing to take the time to talk about your work and also the Rembrandt exhibition. We've actually been working together for a few years now, probably maybe nearly three years on a project that we call Ekphrasis, which is you and I helping Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's students to really facilitate them in workshops to respond to the Austrian Museum collection. And I was wondering, we talk about Ekphrasis all the time and we know what it is, but you're probably the best person to explain what we mean when we say the word Ekphrasis. I can see your eyebrows raising there whenever I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, well... Perhaps my eyebrows raise because ekphrasis is actually a very, very difficult term to define. It's a very broad term. I suppose the, the easiest way to think about it is that ekphrasis is a piece of writing that responds to a work of art. More often than not, ekphrasis is a poem responding to a work of visual art. There, there can be a very, very broad interpretation of the term, uh, which is sort of any uh, artwork in any medium which responds to or translates an artwork in another medium. Uh, but the way that we sort of tend to think about it and the way that the phrase is used most commonly is uh, for a poem or a piece of writing that responds to and describes a work of visual art. The term itself is made up of two uh, Greek elements. So the first one is ek and the second is phrases. Phrases is simple enough. That means uh, speech or to speak. And then the ek is where things get kind of complicated and tricky. The probably the best translation of it would be out, but it's never entirely clear because of, of the difference, uh, because of differences in how 
Greek and English work, it's never entirely clear whether that means out from or outside of or out with. Uh, so I think that there's a couple of different sort of ways in which the relationship between the piece of writing and uh, the work of art, there, there are different ways that that relationship can be thought of spatially, depending on how you want to translate that little word ek. It is, yeah, it is quite, when you really start to unpack it, I think we could do, entire, we could do an entire podcast just on the word ekphrasis and get ourselves very tied up. <laughs> Absolutely, I have done, um, I have written papers about just trying to translate that word ek and, and work out what exactly that might imply for for how texts and, and images might relate to each other. Whenever we were starting to make our events public, we were doing obviously our workshops with Seamus Heaney Centre Queen students who know what ekphrasis is are doing an ekphrasis module with you most of the time and, and have explored this and unpacked the word themselves. But whenever we made them public, we ended up just calling them poems about paintings, which was really the easiest way to describe what we were doing. And it is, it is, it is in an essence what we're trying to do with our ekphrastic work is taking the paintings and prints and drawings in the Austrian Museum collection and, and writing poems about them or in really maybe not about them. I think people often think whenever they come to a workshop or an event that it's going to be a literal representation of the painting in a poem, but it is in response to the poem and each poet and artist takes that in their in their own way. Yeah, because there are so many different ways of doing that. And that's why um, one of the reasons I think poetry can be such a brilliant way of responding to art is that it isn't um, it isn't singular, you know? It's, it's not like a sort of formal art criticism or art history that has a very sort of prescribed and established set of rules. I suppose a set of rules because those disciplines do great work on their own. But with a poem, you have all these different ways of, of going about responding to a work of art. So you can be quite descriptive about it and sort of describe the images um, if there are images in the work of art. I think that sort of becomes complicated with then how would you approach looking at uh, an abstract painting, for example, or something that doesn't have sort of easily uh, readable, easily understandable image content. Uh, another thing that a lot of ekphrastic writing does is it sort of narrates the image. So one of the big differences between uh, an image and a poem is uh, that they relate to temporality in very, very different ways. An image, by definition, presents a stilled, singular moment. There is no before and after, or if there is a before and after to an image, they're always implied, they're always open to interpretation. So a poem, uh, because a poem happens sequentially, a poem happens over time, you read one word to the next, a poem can supply the before and the after, but always in a sort of provisional and very creative way. In your own practice, you write your own ekphrastic poetry. Does that mean then you yourself visit a lot of exhibitions and look at a lot of art? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just, and I always have done just because I love it. Um, I was never much of a drawer or painter myself. I mean, I, I studied art in school, but never would have, um, was never really fantastic at it. Um, but I think I I probably love visual art more than I really love poetry now. Um, maybe because it is, in a way, mysterious to me still. Um, I don't really understand fully how paintings are made in a way that I can, you know, I can look at a poem and I can sort of see what's going on there and, and, uh, and interpret that poem based on the kind of training that I've had as a, um, as a writer and as a literary critic. But paintings and other kinds of visual art still retain that element of mystery. They're still opaque to me in a way. Because that's interesting because it's why I love poetry. It's exactly 
the opposite relationship because I don't have any... Yeah, yeah, I studied English up until well, GCSE, but then never... It's always just been my escape from art has been poetry especially and prose to still be involved in something creative and enjoy something creative but I spend a lot of time looking at paintings so it's nice to have a break to read about them. I, su I suppose there are very different kinds of pleasure aren't they? Like there is a really unique pleasure that comes from looking at something and studying something that you really do know about like that that is um that, that is a wonderful and beautiful thing to do but then it is a yeah it's a very different kind of pleasure than looking at something that that still retains that little bit of of mystery. Definitely. And today, that's really why we're here as well, is to talk about probably the last exhibition you saw before the most recent lockdown. <laughs> yep, certainly it was, yes. So you went to the Ulster Museum to see my exhibition on the Rembrandt etchings, A Unique Silence. And I know you had a few questions really about how I put the exhibition together and also your own observations as well. And we we're going to talk a bit about that today. Yeah, oh, there were so many things I, I thought about when I was looking at that exhibition. And I, I mean, I want to just congratulate you on it. I thought it was a really, a really lovely curated show. Um, and there were so many things about it that stood out to me. And one of the things I really appreciated about that exhibition was the emphasis on the public collection as an idea. I got this sense that you'd selected all of these other works from the Ulster Museum collection and that they were all sort of lining up to form a kind of welcoming committee for these uh, Rembrandt etchings. Um, and of course these Rembrandt works have come into the uh, the Ulster Museum in uh, through the tax in lieu scheme. So I wonder if you could maybe tell us about well, what, how is it that these artworks came to be in the public collection and, and why it's important for you as a curator to emphasise the fact that this is a publicly owned collection? Well, thank you. It's really nice to hear. I think whenever you're creating an exhibition, obviously, I have a lot of ideas about how I want it to be perceived and you kind of get stuck in it yourself and all you can see is all your own ideas for the exhibition and it's sometimes you worry that that is going to translate to the public when they see it so it's lovely to hear that what I wanted to happen did happen whenever you read the exhibition because it is it sounds a bit cheesy but it is the idea of the Ulster Museum print collection is welcoming Rembrandt to the collection and that was really my main drive behind this particular show whenever we first got the prints and I'll, I'll get on to the, the details of that in a minute whenever we first got the six Rembrandt etchings into the collection which was at the end the end of 2019 so just before Christmas last year and I knew I was going to do this exhibition eventually but it actually wasn't scheduled until January 2021 originally but it was with lockdown and being closed for so long as, the, as an institution and the public not having access to the public art collection. It was our directors actually asked me if I could pull the exhibition forward and open it for as soon as possible whenever the museum reopened as something, as such a celebration because it is these new works that have been brought into the collection. It's something to celebrate and something exciting for people to come and see after the museum being closed for so long. And whenever I was researching, it was my colleague, Anne Stewart, who's another one of the art curators, who knows me very well and knows that I like to chuck everything at an exhibition. I like to get as much information as possible and tell the full story of what's going on. And she reminded me that this wasn't going to be the only time the public were going to get to see these prints. It is, they've come into the collection, it's the first time they're going on public display together as a six. We, we put two of them out last Christmas just to to let people know about the gift, but it was the first time they were going to go into an exhibition. And they're in the collection I look after, 
and I'm going to be displaying these hopefully for years to come and, and many different under many different themes and guises and, and we'll be putting you know one or two in an exhibition or all of them so this really was about saying hello to Rembrandt and letting you as a member of the public and the wider public know that we own these now these are part of the public collection and it's something that's really important to me in my job is that as a curator of a national museum I am you know I'm a public servant my job is to be the custodian of the art collection and to create access to it through exhibitions through things like this podcast through social media talks and research and also through inquiries and working with academics like yourself and other researchers to facilitate access to Ulster Museum public art collection. It's a publicly owned collection that's paid for with public money. I'm always trying to remind people of that, like this is yours and you have a right to this and you have a right to access and to learn about it. And this gift was kind of the perfect opportunity to do that in a more defined way because it was quite a small exhibition as well. So it gives you quite a lot of space to explore to talk about that. But also because of this gift itself, this in lieu of tax scheme. And I think frequent visitors to the Austrian Museum would be aware of the scheme from other paintings that we've recently had. Sort of, We've had a few one-off, like the Jacob Van Rysdale gift a couple of years ago that came from a very well-known estate. And the idea of the in lieu of tax scheme is whenever there are death duties or taxes that have to be paid following the passing of someone who has a large estate, they can gift objects from their estate that are in lieu of that tax and then those objects become part of public collection. And for me, it's a really special thing because it's something that a lot of people maybe who have had vast, incredible art collections maybe have loaned them to public collection before and have been in exhibitions and people have seen them, but they are still a private thing. There's something that's been owned by maybe one person or one family and haven't been seen by people. So this entire process it brings them back into public realm and makes them owned by the people again and visible by the people again and it's really exciting. These particular six Rembrandt prints came from a private collection. We don't know really anything about the previous owner. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And sometimes someone will stipulate in their will that something has to go particularly to, to a museum or an area or a, sort of a geographical jurisdiction. But in this case, it wasn't like that. So we actually had to apply to be gifted them. Other museums were free across the UK to apply for them. And we had to put together a very strong application to really argue that we deserve to have the six Rembrandt etchings. And whenever I was working with colleagues to write the application, we talked a lot about our public and talked about how much the Ulster Museum visitors would want to have these in the public collection, would want to see these. And we referenced a lot a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, the National Gallery loan exhibition of a Rembrandt self-portrait. And that was such a popular exhibition and people really loved learning about Rembrandt and seeing him and were quite sad to see the painting go. So this is the chance to bring Rembrandt into the collection and explore his life more. And that application form went to the In lieu of Tax board who are sort of organised by Arts Council England. So it's a very long process and it goes through a lot of different levels of authority. But we were very lucky to be gifted these at the end of 2019. I was interested in something uh, you mentioned there about, um, well, you mentioned that this is not the last time that you're going to work with these Rem- these six uh, Rembrandt prints. 
And it also isn't the last time that we as a public are going to be able to just walk into the museum and, and have a look at them. And that's something that uh, I particularly like about the idea of the public collection and particularly in a, an institution like the Ulster Museum, which doesn't charge an admission fee. You can just pop in for five minutes on your lunch break or something, which I have done for many, many years when I've been a student and then working at Queen's. I think that allows then members of the public to form like meaningful relationships with artworks because you see them again and again and then you'll see them in an exhibition and then they'll go away for a while and then they'll be put up in a new exhibition in a new context and you can form this sort of like ongoing changing relationship with the collection as a whole and with uh, in, uh, individual artworks and it allows you to always sort of be rediscovering parts of the collection and rediscovering artworks and so recently uh, I was in the museum, it was the same day that I went in to see the Rembrandt exhibition and just had a little walk around the galleries and saw a couple of pictures by Roderick O'Connor. And I must have seen those pictures, uh, I don't know how many times before from going into the museum, but on this particular day there was something happened and they struck me and I noticed how incredibly beautiful they were. Um, and it's only in a sort of public freely available collection that you can really, you're allowed to do that because you don't have to make a day of going into the museum and try to see everything at once and try to understand everything at once. You can take your time with it. You can take a lifetime with it, really. Yeah, the idea of a lifetime is a lovely thing. And I think, especially you talk about Roger O'Connor in that gallery, the Irish Art Gallery, the works in there, just thinking of Lavery specifically, that he's become the public's painter. I think another artist has been said that about this idea of the public's painter, but everybody in, who visits the Ulster Museum, especially regular visitors like yourself, have ownership over the paintings and have opinions about how we display the paintings and the context that we display them in. But it's wonderful that people have these lifelong relationships with paintings. And you have people who maybe, we have quite a common type of visitor who came as a child and then maybe in their early adulthood didn't come back, but then have come back to the museum with their own children. And then they go to the art galleries and they see paintings they remembered as a child, but now see them in a different context and have this ownership over paintings. And it's really wonderful to see that relationship with the public and the public collection and to know that that goes on. That's going, you know, it's already been happening for nearly a hundred years. And our job is to make sure that happens for hundreds more years, but it is, especially with these Rembrandt prints, because they're part now of the permanent collection. You know, they're on display now until probably the end of January. They'll come down for a while. There'll be other exhibitions, but they'll come back on display and people will remember them like yourself and maybe people who went in to a unique silence and didn't spend a lot of time might come into another exhibition and spend more time and also look at them in a different context. And I think that's important. It's you're telling a story with every exhibition that we put on and we curate. And the story with this exhibition is very specific about just introducing people to the concept of Rembrandt and his printmaking, because a lot of people won't be familiar with that. But the next story I tell might be completely different. I haven't really, I've got a few ideas, but you know, I haven't really explored that yet, but over the next however many years, that, that story will change each time. I was also really interested in the title that you chose for this exhibition, A Unique Silence, which I think is such a, a wonderfully resonant phrase in all sorts of ways. Um, and, and reminds me of a, a couple of things uh, in other bits of Dutch Golden Age art. So I can think of um, in Vermeer, for example, 
there is always this sort of sense of silence in those pictures, but it wasn't something I associated with Rembrandt as such before. I always thought of Rembrandt's pictures as being fuller and noisier and, and more boisterous, but I, but I think it does absolutely work with these prints. So I wonder how that title came about. Well, you said it yourself, noisier. I think for me, whenever I was going through my research, I just kind of came to the conclusion that this period of Dutch painting just wasn't very noisy. <laughs> and I just kept coming across this reference to silence and quiet and stillness. And as you say, you don't, you think of that with Vermeer and you think of that of all those very famous Dutch still lives, but you don't think of it with Rembrandt as much because you think of his religious painting and even his portraits. But actually, when, whenever I started to go back and look at his painting with this kind of lens of silence, I realised that even his paintings aren't as dramatic as other paintings of the time. And I just kept thinking about this idea of, of quiet and stillness. And even when you think of um, one of Rembrandt's most known paintings, its original title was a lot longer, but it's now known as the Night Watch in, in the Reich Museum in, in Amsterdam. Like that's of a military guard, but it's not showing them particularly active. It's showing them kind of in an in-between state. And Rembrandt would quite often do this with this painting and with his prints. And it's always kind of like the moment after or the moment before, and it's capturing a, a moment of calm because even the descent from the cross by torchlight which is a famous allegorical image it's quite quiet the way he has rendered it in, in in that etching and it just kept coming back to this idea and actually whenever I was I do a lot of reading around exhibitions and and kind of pull everything together from my notes from that reading to then pull together the the interpretive text and there was an essay written in 1953 by Seymour, Seymour Slive or Sliv that was looking at just Rembrandt in general and he was really looking not even at Dutch painting just he actually was talking about just not the Dutch as a national people and his opinion of their silence but that was you know that's his own opinion but I came across it was just this random throwaway sentence in the middle of this very long essay and he said a unique silence and it just grabbed at me and colleagues of mine will know that I am a nightmare for exhibition titles. It takes me a really long time to figure out. Some curators are very good at, they'll have the exhibition title before they have anything and they'll kind of work to that. Whereas I'm the complete opposite. I have to, to be honest with you, if I had my ideal scenario, I would not name an exhibition until it was completely on the wall and I've, all the interpretation was there and I'd maybe given a tour and had reactions from people and then I would have the name. But that doesn't work very well for marketing or to be able to tell people about your exhibition beforehand. And I've also I've been known to change titles of exhibitions like two months before they open or a few weeks before they open. But for this, that term, a unique silence, just grabbed me from the beginning. And it I wondered if it was going to be a bit too abstract because obviously the entire exhibition is about Rembrandt. But I think it does bring everything together. I know there might be some art historians who would disagree with this. But also when you look at the idea of the Dutch golden age of art or Dutch golden age in general, but art at that time and compare it with Italy or France, there isn't as much written about it and there isn't as much noise around it. You really had the paintings and the works themselves and paintings in general are silent. And also with Rembrandt himself, we don't really have, I don't think we have any actual words from him or letters from him the way you would with other artists or artists talking about their own work, even from that time. We've, so all we have is the silence of his etchings and his, his, well, his prints and his paintings to go from. So it all really links to this idea. 
And also uh, the exhibition I did before this called Changing Views, which Podrick, you and I worked on and had an ekphrastic pro- project for that. That featured works by Ruskin and Harding. And they really started the idea of romanticism and the picturesque, which is quite a very emotional and very talked about, very academic period of painting. And I think it was Harding who was really critical of the Dutch for being, for many reasons, but also their kind of silence and their their lack of academia around their work he was critical of. And he used to call the Dutch painters the Van Somethings. And it's always something that's in my head was this kind of criticism for them as well. So that all... There's a lot behind it, as you can tell, there's quite a lot of thinking behind names for exhibitions, which is going to be why it takes me so long to, to get to them. But there was all this came together to get to the name of the exhibition. It really made me think of a poem by uh, the great Belfast-born uh, poet Derek Matten, um, who, who's now very much missed. And he has a poem called Courtyards in Delft, which is an uh, um It's not responding to... Uh, Rembrandt picture, but a picture by uh, Peter de Hooch, who was roughly a, a contemporary of Rembrandt. And something I find interesting about Derek Mahan's poem is how he describes the scene through a series of negations and absences. He's so much more focused on what isn't there rather than what is. So he has, um, around the second stanza of this poem, there's this great list of negations. Um, no breeze ruffles the trim composure of those trees. No spinet playing emblematic of the harmonies and disharmonies of love. No lewd fish, no fruit, no wide-eyed bird about to fly its cage, while a virgin listens to her seducer, mars the chaste perfection of the thing and the thing made. And I think that is picking up on that, as you say, unique silence that we find in so much of Dutch Golden Age art. Another thing that interested me about the exhibition was how it's divided into six quite distinct movements or sections or themes. So I've, I did copy out a list of those themes. They are uh, intimacy, retelling stories, deceptive prints, fearless experimentation, reality over the ideal, portraits and humanity. And um, I wondered how, how those six themes came about. So did you have a sense that those six things were very important threads or ideas for understanding Rembrandt's work and then match those prints to those themes? Or did you spend time looking at and considering each print and and suggesting and thinking about what that print might suggest about Rembrandt's work more generally? I think that a mixture of those two things, really. As I said, it was really about introducing Rembrandt and looking at him in, in, in more of a general term and this idea also of him as a printmaker, which is something that people, our visitors might not have been aware of before. They would maybe think of his portrait work or his very well-known sort of religious paintings, but also might not know him at all. And just to really channel the idea of printmaking and, and as I said, back to this idea of introduction. So I looked at the six... And also just having six prints to try to do a full exhibition out of as well. You don't want it to be disappointing. You don't want people to come and see Rembrandt and get very excited and then turn up and there's just six tiny prints on the wall. So it's just trying to, it was trying to figure out a balance of how I I fleshed out the idea. And I did look at each print in detail. And now saying that, this was a very strange exhibition because it was all done from my spare room. Normally I spend a lot of time in our collection store looking at work being up close with the work and then reading and then going off to libraries sometimes there'll be research trips this was very different because it was all very much done at home 
So I was looking at JPEGs like on my screen of the prints, but also doing a lot of this wider research. I started to think, right, if I can divide the exhibition into these six parts, how can I convey who Rembrandt was as a printmaker through these six prints? And we are very lucky in this gift and if and in the diversity of the gift within the prints that they do show quite the different types of prints that he made and quite distinctive themes. And those themes that you just named were obvious to me once I was in the thick of research and thinking about Rembrandt 24 hours a day. And I could see how each print defined a specific area of his practice as an artist, as a person, as, as a printmaker. And from that, then I was able to go to the store. I think I had one day to go to the store because we're also obviously working very restricted because of COVID. And I had to purely visually select works from the Austrian Museum collection to then tie in with these, these prints. And it was actually a really fun exercise because normally I would maybe be doing things maybe more from an academic perspective. And there was some quite academic choices and then also sort of art history choices to do with people I knew who, who had been directly influenced by Rembrandt as printmakers like James McVeigh who quit his job as a bank clerk to become a printmaker and went and lived in Holland to study Rembrandt for three months and returned there throughout his career but a lot of them were specifically on visually how they connected to these themes and fearless experimentation is a really good example because one of the major themes across all, I think, the the six areas of the exhibition is this idea that Rembrandt was fearless in his experimentation with printmaking. He pushed printmaking as far as it could go. And that's also what I'm trying to do was showing how his influence on printmaking has lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. And he did, he has influenced printmakers even now and how they work because of his lack of fear with scratching over plates and adding different techniques and pigments and you know not being scared to mess things up not being scared to change things and I hope that comes across throughout the exhibition but particularly with that area which is called fearless experimentation I wanted to show his what he's most known for in etching which is this use of the technique we call tenebrism which is this very dramatic light and contrast between light and dark and it's drawing the viewer's eye to one particular area of an image and um the print in that section the rembrandt print is the descent from um the cross by torchlight and that's really believed to be made around the time where he really honed this technique and this skill and it also shows his influence of caravaggio and Caravaggio's use of this thing called the cellar light, which is this also this idea of having one light source in an image that draws your focus and draws your attention, but also has this beautiful area of shade all around it. And I really then just looked at prints in the Austrian Museum collection that I felt did the same thing. And I felt it was an artist either being directly influenced by Rembrandt and or using this technique of tenebrism, or also experimenting in their own way. So there's a Gertrude Hermes print in that section of the car headlamps casting light on a road and Gertrude Hermes herself said about printmaking that it was bringing light out of the dark which also links beautifully to what Rembrandt did and she but she did it in her own way and developed her own technique to show this contrast between light and shade so it was about yes connecting prints that were clearly obviously influenced by Rembrandt or fit within these themes or also artists who had done done things in their own way and as you go around the exhibition, 
you'll notice there are prints that could have fit in any of the themes and there's one it's actually the James McBay that fits in that fearless experimentation but also fits in the reality over the ideal section because the reality over the ideal section is about how Rembrandt showed normal people in everyday life in his work and, and didn't use models in the same way that other artists did at the time and that James McBay is showing a woodworker at his work in this beautiful beautiful use of tenebrism so a lot of the prints could have been interchangeable in the different sections and some sections were easier than others the fearless experimentation section I probably could have filled like 25 times over because it's something that printmakers have been influenced by Rembrandt and have experimented with a lot portraits as well we have a lot of portraits in the collection so a, a huge choice but the the intimacy section I actually really struggled and it's actually the smallest section in the exhibition I did find it hard to find another artist who had captured intimacy in like an, a non-sexual way in an image as beautifully as Rembrandt did in, in portraits and that's why that's a bit of an odd not odd section but it shows different types of intimacy so there's the funeral scene because that's an intimate moment in life. There's also, there's a nude study. There's also quite an intense study of a Galway woman. So just trying to show these different ways of what we can perceive intimacy to be. I want to talk a little bit about the deceptive print section. I want to talk about that because the particular print that you chose to illustrate that idea was, I think, my favourite of these six Rembrandts. It was called um, Six's Bridge. Uh, and, and in your uh, interpretation, in your notes around that print, you mentioned that... Um, that Rembrandt preserved a kind of spontaneity of drawing in his printmaking, which was quite novel and quite innovative at the time when he was working. And perhaps this struck me because, uh, well, one of my lockdown projects was to try to get back into drawing. So I have been doing quite a bit of that really since, uh, since April. And there was, as you said, this quick, spontaneous quality to that print that did make it look much more like a pen and ink drawing than, than something as you said, that came out of quite a this slow process of, of etching. Definitely, I think that print is the perfect, really, is, we're so lucky to have it because it is the perfect example of him experimenting in that way. And though etching, there are slower processes of printing and etching is, isn't as slow as some others and you can, it does allow the printmaker to have that kind of freedom. And he demonstrated that perfectly and beautifully, but he was really one of the first to do that. And it's something that other printmakers then have gone on to do for hundreds of years and still do today. And the other prints in that section, I I hope they convey, but they show how other printmakers have taken that idea of just being a bit more fluid and quicker in your printmaking, but applying your own technique. Yeah, so I think in that print, you really see that, as you said, fluidity of technique uh, in the way that he's drawn a tree. It's on the uh, uh, left-hand side of the print, and it is at once a really beautifully observed and honest depiction of a tree, but at the same time, it looks just like a little series of scribbles. And it really made me think of uh, a little quote from... Um, an essay by the brilliant art critic John Berger. In his essay, uh, To Take Paper, Draw, he talks about the difference between works on paper. He's talking specifically about drawings, but I think we can apply this to prints as well. So he talks about the difference between works on paper and paintings. And he says, um, paintings with their colors, their tonalities, their extensive light and shade compete with nature. They try to seduce the visible, to solicit the scene painted, 
Drawings cannot do that. They are diagrammatic. That is their nature. Drawings are only notes on paper. The paper lends itself between the lines to becoming tree, stone, grass, water, cloud. Yet it can never for an instant be confused with the substance of any of these things. For evidently and emphatically it remains a sheet of paper with fine lines drawn upon it. I like the idea of drawings being notes because for me, as someone who looks after prints and drawings, it's really this connection with the artist themselves that you don't maybe get as much with paintings. You're getting the artist's personal ideas and notes on the page. And that particular print you're talking about, I think is the perfect example of that because it feels like it's captured in the moment. It feels like he's working something out and he's, and, and he's really taken by this tree and has beautifully represented it on the page. And it doesn't come across as an etching in that way. But there's other works in that section that do that as well. And it just shows that printmaking isn't this very static process that maybe people think it is. It is a lot more fluid and free. And you can get this connection with the personal, with the artist. And even though we were talking about the idea of prints being multiples, you still are getting that connection to an artist's free thinking thought and idea in like a quick sketch, which is which is really special. It reminded me of some things I know about Rembrandt's practice as a painter as well, um, that he did sort of preserve, in a way, evidence of the movement of his own body, the movements that his hand was making to create his works. I'm thinking of um, how he would sometimes score into paintings using uh, the, the other end of, of a paintbrush. Or there's one in particular where um, it, it's a portrait of, of a upper middle class Amsterdam burger and in this painting it's a full length portrait and Rembrandt made the the gold buttons on this man's coat just by thumbing sort of yellowy orange paint onto the jacket and I think that again it's preserving the sense of the artist's hand in a very literal way there and in a way that, that preserving that drawing quality also preserves the idea of the artist's hand. I think that is why people love Rembrandt so much and why you think about how, you know, how old these works are and how popular he still is. It's this, I think there's two, well, there's multiple reasons behind it, but two of the main reasons are exactly what you're saying is there's this connection to the artist, like physical connection that you see in that Sixes Bridge work because there is like a slight, he did go over his prints again and add pigment and add washes. And I think there is like a slight hint of maybe where he's gone and added white pigment afterwards to that Sixes Bridge print which is just that wonderful connection to the artist's hand and also whenever we borrowed the self-portrait from the National Gallery it had the same thing you could see the actual you know the end of his paintbrush where he'd scorn back in and as you say just really evidence of the artist touching the canvas or touching the page and I think it's this human connection between him and his works and then the public that has made him so popular and that also comes across in his subject matters as well. The fact that a lot of the time he didn't show, he did obviously have those, as you, as you mentioned, a portrait. He had these commissioned portraits. He was part of Dutch society. He was one of the, if not the most popular portrait artist of his time and, and was paid to do these commissioned works. But also in his own time, made paintings and prints that showed real life and real people and like the aging process and decay. And it wasn't always beautiful and it just had that real human connection both in his subject matter and then the way he chose to show them and also how he 
depicted religious stories as well. Like he would, this idea of depict people in their contemporary dress and just making art a lot more relatable, which is something we're used to talking about all the time now, but it's funny to think about it in the context of that time in Dutch history. He depicted uh, figures of religious history in a way that would have been very relatable and very understanding to Rembrandt's immediate audience. Um, one of my students over the summer wrote a poem that ends with a bit of an acrasis on a, a different Rembrandt print, not one in the Austrian Museum collection, but a, a print uh, that Rembrandt made of the scene of the supper at Emmaus. And something that my student really picked up on in that print was that Rembrandt depicts Christ as just like a kind of slightly schlubby, balding, little, kind of bit overweight, middle-aged man. I think um, he, he did that a lot in his, his religious depictions. And that idea of showing Christ as not what people deemed as Christ-like was quite groundbreaking at the time. I think artists had done it through painting, um, in pre not around that time, but um, sort of a, few, a hundred or a couple of hundred years previous. But the descent from cross by torchlight is so interesting for that as well. And I think that's one of the reasons that these six prints were so lucky to have them because we can, you're talking about another print, but we can show this example in the Austrian Museum collection, which is really exciting. But the that descent from cross by torchlight shows Christ as quite human and being physically lifted. He's not being shown as this in this sort of spiritual, ethereal way that you would see maybe in other images. He is shown as actually human and mortal. And Rembrandt was, was excellent at doing that throughout his, his religious work. You mentioned earlier that Rembrandt was influenced by Caravaggio. Caravaggio was another painter who depicted uh, you know, biblical and historical scenes in the sort of what was for, for Caravaggio the modern day, you know, he depicted uh, Christ and the disciples wearing 17th century clothing. And then there's another print in this exhibition by uh, Ian Fleming, which takes this sort of idea, I think, to quite uh, an extreme. Yeah, I love that print. I, I was really excited because it's one of my favourite prints in the collection. And I haven't for years really found the right place to show it yet. And this was Getting these prints gave me the perfect opportunity. I always thought at some point I would do an exhibition on, you know, different depictions of biblical narrative. But the Ian Fleming print, it's just beautiful. It's very striking, but also the way he has used different imagery within it. So it's of the Garden of Gethsemane. Ian Fleming was a Scottish printmaker, sort of a mid-20th century printmaker. And the fact that even in the the surrounding area of the Garden of the Gethsemane, you're there's architectural notes to Glasgow architecture and, you know, people would recognise it as areas of Glasgow, but also he travels through France a lot. So he's used very French looking trees and everybody's in contemporary dress as well. And also quite controversially, especially probably for that time, Christ kneeling in the garden is a self-portrait of the artist himself as well. And this is something that we maybe see a lot more in, in the last 50 or so years within art. And, but it does link a lot back to what Rembrandt was doing. And it interests me because I have a little bit of an interest in uh, some aspects of the literature and culture of the Middle Ages. And in the Middle Ages, there was this idea that we now call effective piety, which was such an important uh, part of how people expressed religious devotion in the Middle Ages. And 
By effective piety, what we mean is a way of, of thinking about the divine that isn't purely mental or intellectual, but a way of apprehending the divine that is also emotional and bodily. So uh, right up to the Renaissance, so throughout the Middle Ages, you do see these very pathetic, very human, often very shockingly violent depictions of Christ and of the Virgin Mary and of martyred saints. And then in the Renaissance, a lot of the violence kind of gets stripped away uh, and these ideas of ideal beauty come in. And then with uh, the Baroque, so with artists like Caravaggio and Rembrandt, then that humanity kind of becomes a big factor again. It is really interesting seeing these these patterns in art, as you say, and, and you know, something happens and then the fashions change, but the narrative, like the story being told stays the same the whole way through. And that's what I was trying to do with that section of the exhibition. It's like, you recognise these stories, no matter what your own personal beliefs are, people can relate either, you know, to the biblical stories being told or their stories from Greek mythology or Roman mythology. And it's these narratives that have been part of storytelling for thousands of years that then get redepicted by artists and those trends change. And it's funny also just thinking of the artist that yeah came before Rembrandt. He was very influenced. You know, he was a big collector of prints and drawings himself. He had a huge collection, which he lost sadly whenever he was became bankrupt. But you, you, you do wonder what was he looking at whenever he was making these images? What, how far back did he go? What, what other artists was he thinking about? Was he thinking about those depictions of the Middle Ages? And how was he influencing that in his own work? There's also interesting implications there considering the fact that uh, the Netherlands was officially at least a Protestant state. So that did put a lot of pressure on artists to really think about and think critically about how, about whether even they are allowed to depict the divine or, or whether that is idolatry. Yeah, there's a lot um, when you look at the wider context of what's going on at that time in Dutch society, there's a lot of conflicting things that were happening. There was the idea that you sort of think about that time as being purist and and very simplified life and and the and the church the protestant church was really running everything to do with society and education and culture but in contrast to that i've also read a lot about how it was a very culturally and educationally free time and people also you know outside the very wealthy also had access to art and information in a way that hadn't happened before so there's a lot happening around that time which I hope to be able to explore in future with with Rembrandt exhibitions and that's wonderful about having these prints is that we can you know be great to get you back and then talk about this in that context at another time because it is or whenever we do that exhibition because there's just so much to talk about about that sort of Dutch golden age of painting and especially to look at these kind of conflicting things that were going on and also relations also what was happening there to what was happening in, in Ireland at the time as well and then later on. So there's just so much to talk about whenever we talk about Rembrandt and these prints. Yeah, so I mean, well, quite a few years ago now for my uh, undergraduate dissertation, I wrote a whole bunch of poems about still life pictures from the Dutch Golden Age. And something that I find just endlessly fascinating about those pictures was that there's always a tension there between a religious culture which values uh, simplicity and which is very sceptical about material excess happening at the same time as one of 
uh, well, at the time, the world's biggest economy, and in many ways, the, the beginnings of modern capitalism can be traced back to the Dutch Golden Age. So how can you, in pictures, reconcile this sort of religious suspicion of excess and a state-sanctioned excess in itself, you know? It's funny as well, I think Rembrandt kind of ties that up perfectly as of himself, because he worked for the state in many ways. He was a society painter. He also as we've discussed, showed real life. He showed people on the street. He showed what was going on. He, he did. And also this idea of going back to silence as well. But at the same time, we believe he lived quite an opulent lifestyle. He was the one to encourage people to just name him Rembrandt, not by his full name. He wanted to be seen as this kind of celebrity artist. He had, he amassed this huge collection of not just work, but just wider antiquities as well and was very much part of this society. So he, Rembrandt himself really does show this contradiction and culture of that time. So, Podrick, I think we've definitely explored this exhibition to the point where we've now planned the next exhibition on the Rembrandt Prince, which I'm looking forward to working on and then getting you back in to talk about. I just want to say thank you so much for giving us your time today to talk about your own work and talk about sort of poetry in relation to Rembrandt and also really explore the exhibition. It was great to see how much or to hear how much you enjoyed the exhibition and also to hear that how perfect it was to talk for you to talk about Rembrandt because of your undergrad thesis looking at Dutch still lives as well it's all come together very nicely <laughs> no thank you so much for inviting me to come on and um, I love talking about art and will never pass up an opportunity to do that so thank you Coming up in the next episode, I chat with Anusia Sunderlingham, an artist featured in the Royal Ulster Academy exhibition. We spoke about the influences around her work and the busy life of an artist. The Fine Print Podcast was produced as part of the Ulster Museum exhibition programme. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review to help like-minded people discover it for themselves. For more information on the exhibitions mentioned in the series and wider Ulster Museum activity, please visit our website, nmni.com, or follow us on social media.